Hello and welcome to BJA Education Podcast. My name is Riaz and I'm one of the trainee editors working with the journal. Uh, today I'm recording a podcast for our May 2021 article um, on uh, transcatheter aortic valve implantations. I'm joined today by Michael Charlesworth, who's the author of this article, and I'm going to hand it over to you, Mike, to introduce yourself. Hi, Rez. Um, it's an absolute pleasure to uh, speak with you today. Uh, thank you very much for having me. It was a really nice writing these papers um, for BJ Education. It was a really nice um, uh, author experience as well um, of the editors that felt very, very looked after by them. Um, so my name is Mike uh, Charles. I'm a um, consultant in cardiothoracic anaesthesia in Manchester, but also in uh, ECMO and cardiothoracic ICU as well. Um, I'm also an editor of um, uh, anaesthesia and anaesthesia reports. Uh, and TAVI is, is um, something that um, we do in, here in Manchester uh, and something that has changed an awful lot in the last few years. Um, so I really enjoyed writing these articles and, and um, uh, bringing, bringing everyone up, right up to, up to where we are now. Um, and um, I'm sure that in another few years time, there'll be an awful lot more changes as well, because this is a really exciting uh, area of practice that's changing all the time. Um, yeah, Mike, it was great reading your article and there were a couple of things that I picked up that were super interesting. Um, one of the things that I picked up that I found quite interesting were the diagnostics around aortic stenosis um, and the use of CT, um, CT scanning with ECG, ECG monitoring and also calcium scoring, which I wasn't very much aware of. Do you mind just running us through the what you guys do at your, um, at your hospital in terms of diagnostics? I guess when a patient uh, is found to have aortic stenosis, the first investigation that they receive that identifies it is usually transthoracic um, echocardiography um, and they may present with a murmur they may present with syncope they may have chest pain or, or other symptoms or they may indeed be symptomatic and it might be a um, incidental finding but transthoracic echocardiography um, although it does have limitations can't cannot be underestimated in terms of its importance in this patient group um, so I'd say that's the key mode for assessing patients and, and for the presence and severity of aortic stenosis, um, because it's usually the first investigation that a patient has. Um, and if you look at all the guidelines uh, based on aortic stenosis, whether or not that's in uh, for TAVI or for surgery or for valvular heart disease or, or various other areas of practice, it always usually comes um, to, back to transverse echocardiography and, and some of the parameters that you can measure using that. But, but there are some problems. Um, so, for example, um, in patients who have low stroke volumes or low transvalvular pressure gradients or even low ejection fractions, it, it can sometimes throw you off course or it can sometimes mean that it's more difficult to uh, classify aortic stenosis. And, and there are some ways around that, which perhaps we'll talk about later. But at the very start of the process is, is estimating pressure gradients. Um, and everything is is derived through using uh, Doppler, um, so using the Doppler effect to work out the flow of blood um, through the aortic valve. And, and this is all fed into various equations. And, and one of the ones that's probably worth knowing is the Bernoulli equation, and that relates um, velocity and pressure. And these key parameters have been around for many years, and, and they're always um, feature in, in FRCA questions and, and these numbers are usually uh, very easy to make questions from and, and to ask questions and, and to um, um, ba base a question on and for severe aortic stenosis the sort of numbers that we're talking about is a peak velocity of uh, greater than four meters per second 
Um, mean pressure gradients are greater than 40 millimetres of mercury. Um, and that is associated with, and perhaps we'll talk about how that feeds into the equations to work out the aortic valve area. And obviously, the lower the aortic valve area, the, the lower area through which the blood can flow, and, and that is so-called aortic stenosis. Uh, lower area, the tighter the valve, uh, and the faster that blood has to flow through, and, and the higher the pressure gradient. But th there are various other things that have changed um, more recently in aortic stenosis. So we're using more CTs, and we're using voltage-gated CTs, and these are CT scans that um, the pictures are required in, in various different phases of the cardiac cycle. Um, so you're able to look at the aortic valve when it's open and closed. Uh, and this has been invaluable in terms of structural heart disease. For example, any patient now who is going to undergo um, valvular surgery must have a chest CT, and, and that may show a porcelain aorta. It may show, show severe calcification. It may show, show um, other valvular disease, hypertrophy, various other abnormalities. And, and like you've also suggested, calcium scoring um, as well. Uh, which is a method of um, classifying aortic stenosis. But what's changed more recently is, is efforts to um, uh, not underdiagnose aortic stenosis, but at the same time not overdiagnose uh, it as well in patients who have low gradient uh, aortic stenosis with a normal valve area. And that's perhaps something that may appear a little bit more difficult so for example we talk about mean gradients being high and and peak velocities being high but what about those patients whose ventricles don't work all that well how do we look after those if a patient had a uh, a transthoracic echo and they had all the features that would suggest severe aortic stenosis high peak pressures high high big high mean pressures high velocities low areas these patients would also go on to have a ct or would would and the CT would be diagnostic or CT would be to collect more information about risk stratification in terms of fitting the valve in and looking for other potentials that might cause problem if you were to do a TAVI. Yeah, so the CT is um, essential in the preoperative work for, for anyone with structural heart disease or any anyone undergoing um, heart surgery. We're finding actually um, they're becoming even more useful because um, for patients having routine, you know, coronary artery bypass grafts, for example, they would never normally have a CT scan whatsoever. And, and of course, these patients were having CT scans before surgery during during the pandemic uh, to look for features of um, COVID-19 in the lungs. And we actually got some good data that's, that's unpublished to show that that these CT scans were finding all sorts of um, uh, pathology, which we didn't know about, um, which was really important for someone who's undergoing heart surgery. Um, so for any patient who's diagnosed with aortic stenosis and where they're symptomatic and interventions planned, uh, the CT is just a, a, a routine part of that process. Now, it's a, it's not even a question anymore whether or not they should have a CT scan. It's, um, it's, it's um, something that these patients should have done before they even uh, are discussed in the clinic uh, and something that is discussed with the heart team. Do you think the COVID pandemic's accelerated that, that that kind of trajectory of all these patients having CTs or was it on the horizon already that most patients probably should have CTs? Um, this this was already uh, something that had been adopted in patients undergoing TAVI um, but this is now becoming more and more uh, useful in, in all patients undergoing uh, any form of um, cardiac intervention uh, because it's, it's revealing all sorts of important pathologies that we would have otherwise not known about. For example the patient who's having uh, aortic valve surgery is found to have a porcelain aorta um, and um, the surgeon doesn't want to uh, be confronted with that um, 
uh, during the operation because it would cause issues for putting the cross clamp on, etc. Um, so the, the, these things are, um, are giving us more information, which is uh, making the choices available for patients a lot better. Um, one other parameter that I wanted to wanted to ask you about was this velocity ratios. Is this something that you guys use quite frequently? It's um, another way of expressing the same thing. So if, if we think about how uh, aortic valve area um, is derived, um, which is which is the main uh, determinant of aortic stenosis right at the very beginning of all the pathways. Um, so it's determined through the continuity equation. Um, and we all know that just before the valve is the um, left ventricular outflow tract. And the amount of blood that flows through there, um, so the the, the flow through that air, that uh, diameter must um, the same as the flow through the valve, and we know the diameter of the LVOT. We know the velocity through it, um, and we can work out flow as a result of that. But what we don't know is the uh, diameter of the aortic valve area um, of the aortic valve and the aortic valve area, which is what we want to work out. Um, but we do know the flow through it because we can measure that through the um, uh, echocardiography as well. So. In order to derive the aortic valve area, we put all those three things into an equation, the continuity equation, and, and it tells us what the valve area is. But you can you can miss out all those steps completely because um, that's based on various assumptions. It's based on the Bernoulli equation, uh, which relates pressure and velocity, um, and it's also related on those other measurements. Uh, but one of the most important measurements is the velocity of flow um, through the aortic valve and through the LVOT. So if you just take a dimensionless measurement of those two things, um, then you're able to grade aortic stenosis in the in same way as you would do for valve area. So it's, and, and for example, a valve area of less than one is severe aortic stenosis, and that correlates with a velocity ratio of less than 0.25, um, which correlates with a mean pressure gradient of greater than 40 and a peak velocity of greater than four. And it's, as I say, it's the, the key thing is it's a very, um, similar way of, of, of describing something that's the same, which is the fact that the valve is tight and that flow through it is high uh, because the area is reduced. The world, how I mean, this this all relates to high gradient uh, aortic stenosis, mm -hmm. and I think something that's quite key uh, in the paper that's described is, and something that we're really realizing more and more is is the influence of um, there's this cohort of patients with low flow aortic stenosis. And the workup needed to assess those, uh, which is actually quite complex. And it was described recently in in twenty uh, as recently as twenty seventeen, so five years ago, um, in the European Society of Cardiology and um, uh, Cardiothoracic Surgery Guidance. And again, this looks at peak velocities, it looks at pressure rate, uh, pressure gradients. Um, but in, in patients who have a normal stroke volume index, the, um, a normal ejection fraction, for example, these ones with high gradient aortic stenosis, the diagnosis is really easy. But the world of um, low aortic valve area um, or low velocity ratio or um, high pressure gradient, et cetera, um, in someone who's got a low stroke volume index, so someone whose heart isn't as good uh, as it otherwise should be, is a little bit more difficult. And that's where calcium scoring by CT comes in. It doesn't rely on all these assumptions. It doesn't rely on the Bernoulli equation. It doesn't rely on um, deriving the LVOT diameter and, and measuring flow through LVOT and through aortic valve area and all these other things that you measure on echo. Um, it looks at the calcification of valves and it inputs the images into a computer and it gives you a score. And that score um, is able to um, 
determine whether or not severe aortic stenosis is likely and and that score is is the order of a few thousand so and it varies in men and women so in men if it's greater than 3000 or um, in women greater than 1600 then severe aortic stenosis is very likely but i guess one of the important points is that all these things are taken together so there are various different criteria so there's clinical criteria so severe aortic stenosis is likely if you have typical symptoms uh, without any other explanation it's also likely in someone who's elderly so someone that's greater than 70 years old um, there was lots of qualitative imaging data as well and I think this often gets forgotten that um, that we can focus on numbers because the numbers are very clear and, and, and concrete whereas the qualitative data is a lot more difficult to appreciate sometimes so for example in a patient with left ventricular hypertrophy which is very easy to see on a on an echo and, and to confirm the presence of or someone who's got uh, reduced left ventricular um, longitudinal function without any other explanation but also there's, there's there's other imaging data as well um um such as the ct and such as the other parameters that you can derive and all these things together can can be weighed up or can be inputted into algorithms to determine the likelihood of severe aortic stenosis um and i guess what a lot of these things are trying to do is to um make sure that it, to change that um part of the equation whereby you, this is all really screening and, and it's all about sensitivity and specificity and what, and what we really want to do is to make sure that we don't miss severe aortic stenosis but at the same time we don't over diagnose it and we don't over intervene do you see a lot of patients with low flow aortic stenosis it's it's it's, it's uncommon um but it's um it's significant in terms of um that proportion of patients who um, previously before this new guidance in 2017 um, I'd say around sort of 15 to 20 percent would be mislabeled as um, severe aortic stenosis when actual fact uh, they would have pseudo severe aortic stenosis which is uh, aortic stenosis that uh, where the valve area normalizes when uh, stroke volume normalizes and, and you would determine that using a, um, a stress echocardiography uh, with dobutamine for example but but also um, sometimes we, we're a lot more familiar now with this discordant data in patients whereby um, they may have these very typical features of aortic stenosis but um, transthoracic echocardiography doesn't um, always isn't confirmatory in terms of calculating either valve area or looking at pressure gradients and and this is where all these other tests are coming in and this is where clinical judgment I guess is important as well. The next big thing that you touched on your paper which was super interesting were, was um, indications for TAVI and how they've evolved and by the sounds of it they're constantly evolving as time is going on and once upon a time um, it was considered from my understanding was TAVI was for the high-risk patients that can't have open heart surgery um, but maybe they will have a little bit more than just medical management but it's quite interesting that you went through quite a few of your the big studies that you mentioned your partner one partner two and even partner three where there's growing evidence that actually TAVI may be able to be used for a wider, a wider category of patients. Yeah, so um, the, these studies are uh, fascinating because um, they're, they're a real example of where um, randomised control trials, uh, you know, big big RCTs published in, in big journals um, have, have made a, a really big impact on clinical practice and 
choices available for patients and and um and the way that we deliver services etc and and some may say that's that's a good thing um others may be more skeptical and and indeed um although these trials are you know landmark trials which you know incredible amount of patients and an effort gone into them and um a methodological rigor etc and 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 effort into making sure they're well designed they do have the critics as well and i'll I'll perhaps just sort of go through them and, and the main points really it all started with with partner A, which was a non-inferiority trial, uh, and a lot of these trials are non-inferiority and, and non-inferiority methods um, have, have come under scrutiny uh, and do have a lot of limitations, but they're pragmatic. Um, so they're able to show, for example, um, and Tavi's a really good example of this, something like Tavi, um, which is a challenger to the established treatment. So the established treatment is surgery. So we don't particularly want to show that it's superior, that it's better. We want to show that it's as good as. And non-inferiority trials are a really good way of doing that. But there are a lot of different ways whereby, say, for example, if um, if a study uh, underestimates the um, the clinically important difference um, and underpowers the study, um, then you would find what is termed a, a false positive although it's not a positive result you find in non-inferiority which is a positive finding but it's not true but i think the use of non-inferiority trial designs and for all the partner trials and all the other studies is probably appropriate in this case though to be honest and, and a good example of where it, it does work and it is pragmatic so partner a was as i say non-inferiority it was it looked at high-risk patients uh, and it randomized so this is a randomized trial to either tavi or surgery in terms of risk a lot of the nomenclature around risk relates to surgical risk, and this relates to surgical risk scores like the Society of Cardiothoracic Surgery risk scores, uh, which looks at either low, medium or, or high risk patients. And, and this is very much in terms of surgical risk factors, and, and, and it normally relates to patient baseline risk. Some some may argue that, that that's not all that useful in, ter- in terms of um, preoperatively assessing TAVI patients. And, um, and I'll, I'll perhaps mention that a bit later. But this is, this is partner A was the first trial that's a high risk surgical candidates. Uh, and it found that in those that randomised to either TAVI or surgery that they had similar all-cause one-year mortality, which was a really interesting result because there were a lot of people that um, suspected that TAVI um, would not... Uh, fair as as well as that as compared with surgery and surgery was very established and although these patients were high risk that also made them high risk for TAVI as well and, and that didn't turn out to be true but partner B then thereafter compared TAVI with medical therapy um, which is um, a really interesting comparison because in some patients who are deemed unsuitable for surgery uh, because they're too high risk um, this was looking at whether or not TAVI had a role uh, for for these so-called um, poor surgical candidates and this was a really positive result so it wasn't a, uh, so much a non-inferiority positive result this was a real um, finding of superiority at TAVI in terms of all-cause mortality and rates of rehospitalization. but there was some signal that stroke um, had a higher incidence in TAVI patients but that's not too unsurprising to be honest because uh, and again this is very much in the early days of TAVI you're introducing a prosthesis into uh, percutaneously uh, into the uh, main blood vessel in the body. So it's not surprising that that was associated with a higher incidence of stroke, but other outcomes were better. As a result of these trials, so partner A and partner B, the NHS commissioned TAVI uh, for high risk surgical patients. But there was quite a lot of controversy at the time because many more patients than this were being offered TAVI. And we're talking about something that 
10, 15 years ago was being offered to a, maybe a handful of patients. And now uh, we're doing thousands of these procedures. So this has really accelerated over the last 10, 15 years, and it continues to do so. And thereafter, there were several other trials. So um, Partner 2 uh, and Sirtabi looked at intermediate risk patients. And again, we're talking about surgical risk, not risk for TAVI. Uh, but again, it relates to baseline patient risk. And they found non-inferiority again in terms of two-year mortality. Um, so again, this was something uh, that changed the landmark of TAVI because then people suggested that in actual fact, it was appropriate for intermediate patients uh, patients had intermediate surgical risk to have tabbing. And this has all been brought together with um, systematic reviews and, and meta-analyses, which has supported the expansion of TAVI to intermediate. Uh, and more recently with Partner Free, uh, which is a published uh, only a couple of years ago uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, expansion to even low-risk surgical groups. But in terms of surgical risk, I must emphasise the fact that this doesn't relate necessarily to age because the age of those undergoing TAVI in both partner free and the initial partner trials is, is roughly the same. But there's, um, the, there is reasonable evidence for this now. But there's also reasonable evidence for valve in valve TAVI. So patients who've previously had an aortic valve replacement and the prosthesis has failed, instead of those undergoing a high risk redo operation, uh, valve in valve TAVI is an option for them. But it, what's very difficult to do at the moment is to apply a lot of these data to younger risk patients. Uh, sorry, to younger patients. I mean, I guess if you think about it, these uh, prosthesis, so these TAVI valves have to last a long time if they're being put into younger patients or those with, for example, bicuspid valves. So bicuspid valve is something that affects um, uh, younger patients. And the follow-up data, although we're accumulating it as a result of these partner trials, and, and that's why these trials are so useful, we've still not got reasonable data to stop doing TAVIs in young patients. So a lot of all, a lot of this all applies generally to um, to older patients. And when you when these patients are seen in clinic, I suspect this information is all provided to them. And if they if one technique is not inferior to the other technique, I guess patients can choose what they would rather have. Absolutely. So patient choice is, is really important. And um, I guess that's one of the reasons now why we have uh, the heart team uh, and we have MDTs um, and why the patient doesn't just go and see a surgeon prior to surgery who sort of makes the decision between surgery and TAVI. Um, they're, they're all discussed with all of the MDT team and, and then the patient and the patient's relatives. So uh, this information is all uh, given to them and um, as, as best way possible. And very much the choice is theirs. Uh, we can advise, but patient choice is really important in terms of uh, surgery versus TAVI. I guess in terms of um, post-operative recovery, not having a stenotomy and all the risks and complications that come to it, it could potentially be quite appealing to patients. I mean, I'll give you, a, give you an example um, of, a, say, an 82-year-old patient who's deemed to be intermediate risk for surgery. So that might in the past have automatically gone down a, um, a surgical pathway. But I guess with TAVI, you might have a, a quicker recovery. Uh, and, you know, if you consider that with a life expectancy of an 82-year-old as well, I guess that supports the role of TAVI. And it's very difficult to make um, clear rules about that type of scenario. And that's where the clinical judgment comes in on a patient-to-patient -patient basis, um, where everything all considered, um, what's the best way forward for individual patients versus um you know, purely looking at a risk calculator in terms of uh, intermediate, low and high risk. Uh, age is really important. And so is the rec recovery profile of 
surgery and TAVI. He also mentioned about what was really interesting, the pathways of having, of doing TAVI in your hospital, how you've got three streams of patients. Do you mind just running us through that? Yeah, sure. Um, so th- this, I guess when I started as a consultant, this this is something that had changed from when I was there as previously as, as a trainee. Uh, and it's something that it took a while for me to get my head around, actually. Um, but I'm re- realising more and more, uh, having been involved with this, that it works and, and it's good. Uh, so the first one is local anaesthesia, and that's with or without conscious sedation. Um, but that's not with an anaesthetist present. So we've actually trained up our um, ODPs and cath lab staff um, in, in a very similar way to someone that's having a, an endoscopy, for example, um, to provide uh, conscious sedation. And they're fully trained and, and very able and very good at doing that. And they know when to call for help and, and when and when that should be done. And this is very much the default approach now to a percutaneous transfemoral access TAVI, which is about 90, 90% of all our TAVIs. Uh, it's delivered by a standard cardiac catheter lab team, as, as would be, for example, a PCI in an awake patient. And if there are emergencies, which 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 there are from time to time, but um, not all the time, obviously, um, or else we're, we're doing something wrong. But but you know, th- think, things can happen. But this is accommodated by the usual emergency pathway, just for anyone that's having any other intervention in the cath lab, anyone that's having a an elective stent, or anyone that's having a PCI, or or anyone that's having any other type of awake procedure. And that would that call would usually come through to us. So we have four consultants on duty on the um, cardiovascular intensive care unit and a number of trainees as well. And, and we would go around and, and uh, assess the patient and, and, and see what needs to be done. And that's I guess that's the first one. And from a procedural point of view, it means that that list doesn't need a, a consultant anaesthetist attached to it. And that consultant anaesthetist that would normally be attached to that list is freed up to go and, and, and work elsewhere, whether or not that's a thoracic list or a cardiac list or or, um, or another list in another capital laboratory, and and that's that's a good thing I think because TAVIs are coming less reliant on having assigned consultant cardiovascular on their lists, and and that means we get I think it's because we're getting more used to the procedure, we're getting more familiar with with it, we're getting more familiar with complications and and when uh, when we need to intervene. The second stream is for patients who are deemed high risk. So for example, if we think that a patient has got particular comorbidities or say for example they've got back pain or severe musculoskeletal disease or there's a significant risk that they may not be able to lie flat for the procedure for the duration of the procedure or if they've got decompensated valve disease or or there might be a requirement for for rhinotropes or if there's a high risk of valve embolization or migration for example in a patient with aortic regurgitation or if there's a risk of coronary occlusion, uh, which is based on on the anatomy and uh, technical considerations for the procedure, um, then we would have a, an assigned standby cardiac anaesthetist. And this anaesthetist would come to the team brief and participate in the WHO, and they would be available at a moment's notice to intervene if, if that patient required a general anaesthetic or, or support with sedation or um, or, or if support's required in, in any other way, that anaesthetist is, is there and available. And the third one, and, and this is the pathway that was more common when I was a trainee, um, is general anaesthesia. And this is used when alternative access routes are used, say, for example, a mini stenotomy, a subclavian route or transapical route uh, is used, or for a transfemoral route whereby there's a really high risk of vascular complications, and that might require a vascular surgeon on call as well for that particular procedure. But this streamline also includes the need for sedation, constant sedation with um, 
percutaneous access is unfavourable as well. But that anaesthetist would come to the WHO and they would be present throughout the procedure and uh, a full part of that capital lab team. So th- this this is something that's really changed over um, the last few years. And it's something that we term the sort of streamlined um, TAVI process. And it's a really important improvement in quality and resource management and I guess it's a really nice experience for the patients in terms of they, they haven't had a general anaesthetic, so they don't have the side effects of general anaesthetic. Their recovery is super fast. They could probably be eating and drinking soon after the procedure's done. You're absolutely right. It's incredible. Um, so these patients will go to recovery for a short stay and they'd normally be asking for a cup of tea or, or a sandwich and they'd go to the ward and they might go to a monitored bed. Uh, so they might not even need to go to the Conrad care unit afterwards. And um and they'd be home in a couple of days, um, you know, as, as compared to surgery, whereby they would be on intensive care for two days, you know, sedated, ventilated, for, you know, at least a day in someone that's elderly. And the, there were risk of complications for, for both types of procedures. But uh, when things go well um, for either surgery or TAVI, in the best case scenario, the, there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that the recovery profile of, of TAVI is far superior, far superior. So during a TAVI procedure, what's the most common complication that you see? One of the things that that we've seen, it's not really so much a complication, it's um, something that I guess people might feel a little bit uncomfortable with uh, if they've not seen many TAVIs before, is is the period of rapid ventricular pacing to induce transient hypotension. And some patients may feel a bit strange, obviously, when that happens, and it's very unusual to see someone being rapidly paced at such a high rate of, uh, say, 108 to 220 beats per minute for five to 10 seconds. And that's with an aim to reduce the mean arterial pressure to less than 50 millimetres of mercury in order to make sure the valve doesn't migrate when when it's being deployed. But that's not so much a complication. That's some that's just a, a necessary step of the procedure. And, and um, uh, but, but in terms of complications, vascular access is, is, the, um, is, is the key one, really. And it's where we're not able to achieve hemostasis of the uh, primary access point. And a lot of these patients have undergone a CT, not just of, of the chest, but also of the uh, vascular as well and that sometimes might reveal calcification of the arteries but sometimes we, we might find that the arteries are severely diseased and it's not been highlighted by imaging in which case there's a high risk of bleeding uh, there's a high risk of uh, aneurysms pseudoaneurysms there's a high risk of needing a endarterectomy for example and luckily we we have a very good uh, vascular service in our hospital and um, we're We've worked together and um, they understand what's the vascular surgeons understand what's uh, what a TAVI is these days. And they, they know what the common complications are and um, and how they might be asked to uh, to intervene. And, and for any repair of femoral artery after uh, after vascular injury, it usually requires a conversion to a general anesthesia. But the devices that are used these days are a lot lower profile. So um, that's less of a problem because vascular complications have, have been reduced to around 3% now. And there were, used to be an awful lot higher. And that, that's due to a combination of CT and um, ultrasound guided puncture and, and uh, as I say, lower profile um, systems. Uh, some patients might require a pacemaker. That's reasonably common. The ones that we really worry about are coronary artery occlusion, um, aortic annulus rupture, uh, and stroke and the, these are the things that really affect patient outcome uh, in the long term and um, st- stroke is the real um, is, is um, so sometimes especially it's more difficult to elicit in a patient who's had general anaesthesia 
And it's like the old argument about patients who are having carotid endarterectomy uh, asleep or awake, whether or not you're able to assess uh, neurology in, in the asleep or awake state. And the same applies to TAVI as well. And, and I think that's probably one of the factors that favours having the, the procedure awake as well. Uh, is that you're able to assess neurology throughout the procedure as well. Preparing for these complications is the important thing and uh, knowing what they are and, and ready, getting ready for them to happen and, and being able to call for the appropriate backup when that does happen and having an experienced team that's familiar with TAVI and familiar with managing these complications in that event. So it's so you know it's not a team that's, that's in a high stakes, high stress environment that's doing all this for the first time. This is usually something that we're familiar with uh, managing. Thanks so much, Mike. That was brilliant. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, absolutely. I really did. It's it's nice to be on the on the other side for once. Um, I, I look forward to to being the one next time asking the questions in my other role uh, rather than answering them.